Welcome, listeners, to the First Things Podcast, the Editor's Desk. I'm Rusty Reno, and I am sitting at the Editor's Desk here in New York City, and I have with me Ephraim Radner, Professor of Historical Theology at Wycliffe College, um, a constituent college of the University of Toronto, and we're going to talk about his recent article, The Last Lambeth Conference, in the October 2022 issue of First Things Magazine. Welcome to the podcast, Ephraim. Hi, Rusty. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I suppose now I need to take a commercial break and tell our readers, our listeners, that they need to become readers. And all the cool kids are subscribing to First Things Magazine. So if you're listening and you're not a subscriber, you need to get on on into the parade and subscribe to First Things Magazine. Go to firstthings.com. It's easy to subscribe. Okay, we got that out of the way. The last Lambeth Conference. Kind of a double entendre in that title. Yeah, sure. It's the last one in the sense that it's the most recent one. But the the, the point really was the last one we just had probably uh, is the last final one that's going to take place within the tradition of Lambeth Conferences as they quickly evolved from the mid-19th century. Well, okay, so 1867, am I remembering correctly? Yeah, the first name? So give us the, what What was the trajectory? It took a while, didn't it, for the, was it always planned to meet every 10 years, or did that evolve in the late 19th century? Um, that, that, that wasn't immediate, uh, but it was originally called um, at the behest of various bishops within the then- pretty much British-oriented and engaged um, Anglican set of Anglican churches in the world, um, various bishops, because of some conflicts. There were more than one. It's a complicated as well as a uh, disputed history about its origins. But the then Archbishop of Canterbury um, invited bishops to come. Not all of them did. To, in part, sort some of these out, but really to kind of get beyond the arguments and have a time for gathering all these folks, most of whom were British, certainly Anglo-American um, at the time, even though the Anglican Church had uh, uh, working and in some cases vital organizations in places like India and the Caribbean and even in Africa somewhat, not that much, um, and elsewhere, uh, they were all run by English bishops by and large. And so it was a gathering of, of um, basically commonly trained C of E folks who had gone out, but had been working in these far-flung, with respect to England, parts of the world. Not all of them came because not all of them were happy about coming, but the archbishop invited them all. I forget the actual number. And there was some press from the start. You see, I, I mentioned this issue of ironing out some problems, uh, that, that uh, arguments that had been going on in Canada, especially, it's interesting, um, and elsewhere, because uh, very quickly um, there was resistance to the notion of this conference being a synod mm. in the formal sense of taking votes and making binding decisions and so on, um, which would have been a lot easier then because most of the churches were not independent. But as time went on, they became more and more 
there became more and more independent churches, independent from the See of the, the Church of England. Um, and so there was this press, and, and you know, this is a time of fellowship and consultation and prayer and so on. It's not a place to make binding decisions. But that um, tension as to the meaning of the conference, which, as you said, very quickly became a 10-year event, um, gathering more and more bishops, not only because more and more were willing to come, but the church became larger and larger, and there were more bishops to come. That tension continued. How much is the Lambeth Conference meant to make decisions, and how much is it simply a time for people to talk together? And even though it clearly was not meant to be a synod in the formal sense, despite the desire for some, the weight of its decisions. They made res- had resolutions. You know how these things work. Uh, you know, we're not making a decree, we're making a resolution. Well, the res- weight of the resolutions became more and more um, powerful. And as I said in my piece, uh, it was Henry Chadwick, who was a historian. He was a great patristic historian, but also wrote about the conference later, um, said that the Lambeth Conference resolutions, even if they were didn't have legislative authority, certainly gained increasing moral authority. And most people referred to them as authoritative in some pretty real, if not canonical way, as the years went on. One of the big changes in the Lambeth Conference, which goes to present issues, is that as the Anglican Church grew through missionary work and so on, and after the Second World War, especially as those parts of the Anglican Communion, as it came to be called already in the uh, later 19th century, became independent churches uh, with clergy who were indigenous to those areas, more and more bishops who attended the Lambeth Conference were not Anglo-American. They were African, they were Asian, they were Caribbean, and so on and so forth. Um, and I don't want to say cultural, but also we'll say cultural theological identities of these places began to um, assert themselves within the proceedings of the conference. For a while, that was viewed as a wonderful thing. <laughs> Still <laughs> is in some way. But somewhere in the 80s, and you can look at the pictures of all the bishops who they always gathered mm. from the picture. First of all, you went from, you know, around 100 bishops to 800 by the end of the 20th century, and now more than that. Um, you know, by the late 20th century, there are far more bishops who do not look white uh, versus those who do look white uh, in these photos. And it just shows the shift, but also the shift of concern. And, and again, there's theology that goes with all these things. And um, even though we'll say the majority world bishops became the majority of the Lambeth Conference attendees, uh, money and all that kind of stuff that supports these conferences, which costs a lot of money, um, was coming still almost wholly from Western um, Western churches. And the Lambeth Conference is called that because it meets at Lambeth, well, initially it meant at Lambeth Palace and related to Lambeth Palace, which is where the Archbishop of Canterbury lives, resides, has his offices, and so on. Um, that that runs things, still does run things. And there became resentments in addition to theological um, differences that began to emerge by the latter 20th century more clearly, with finally the issue of sexuality, same sexuality especially, um, becoming the main and most divisive one uh, by the late uh, 1998 conference and has been so uh, until the last one. Um, 
there's some been some hiccups in 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 the schedule, but basically it's been every ten years and uh, COVID messed some things up, uh, other things. But here we are, and we just met in 2022 after a hiatus and lots of troubles, and um, everybody thought the issue of same sexuality would disappear or at least be what. Burner. Well, because of COVID, because of all the struggles people have, and this is a world that's hurting, and there's, you know, we've recognized our need for one another, and so on, but it didn't, Mm. and um, it's been uh, intractable. And uh, it seems to me that it seems as I was reading your account uh, and knowing as I do. Um, the evolution of progressive Christianity in the West, it seems like the decisive shift has been that the progressive side wants to say that LGBT affirmation really is core doctrine. And that, because the old argument was, we can live with a disagreement on this because it's adiaphora, it's a matter of indifference. It's a matter of church discipline, um, it's a matter of, um, uh, you know, engaging in certain cultural differences. Is that fair that it's... Yeah, I don't really think anybody ever... No, no. I don't think anybody ever claimed, except for a minority, that the issue of same sexuality... Well, let's just say same-sex marriage, which is what it became. But there was first, there was blessings and unions and yes. so on. Um, I don't think anybody has ever claimed, except for a small minority, um, although a significant... Uh, minority with respect to levers of power, that this was adiaphora. But wouldn't it be uh, fair to say that, that because I remember in my uh, Episcopal Church days and Deputy General Convention in the 90s, that I agree with you, but that that many leaders who favored uh, the progressive uh, cause, but felt a sense of institutional responsibility were very, that was often the argument that was made, even if you know, the activists. Well, the difference was you could say, all right, there are same-sex couples who come to church and perhaps quite openly so and are active in church in the U.S. or England or Mm. Australia or New Zealand, wherever. Um, And we don't throw them out. Um, Maybe maybe some are on the vestry or whatever in the congregations. And so we don't throw them out. We, we, we We don't press the matter. To that degree, it's a pastoral, it's a matter of pastoral adiaphora, but certainly not with respect to teaching and the norms of the can and, and can norms of teaching and norms of the canons. Um, and and when same sex blessings, which became a formal um, of unions, became a formal matter, and then of course marriage itself, that notion of pastoral flexibility um, simply went out the window. You can't. That's no longer pastorally flexible. That's recognizing as a sacrament, if, mm. if one views that, or certainly a canonically legitimate recognized relationship that the church blesses and is willing to help sustain. Um, those are two very different things. And it's true that on the front end, one might have part of it on the front end of the argument. We're talking about maybe the 70s, 80s, first mm-hmm. part of the 90s. Um, people would say, um, well, we can live with this while we sort it out, you know, yes. and I guess that's Adia, but I said, that's a pastoral thing. And there might've been a hope that everybody would come around to one view or another, um, whether, you know, it was a nice experiment, but we'll stick with the tradition or uh, the tradition clearly is 
pretty porous and we'll we'll move to accept it and accept it posit- positively and positivistically with respect to canon law. But um, that that sort of openness to let's wait and see quickly disappeared once legislative matters moved forward. Um, and legislative matters started with, you know, Gene Robinson being elected Bishop of New Hampshire, who was in a public gay partnership, and which later was meant to be, you know, um, sanctified in some fashion, and consent taking place at the convention of the Episcopal Church. That was a public issue, and it was the first one where everything spilled out uh, in a divisive way, and people left, and, and you know, I was at that convention, and mm. uh, um, people left and didn't come back. Some people left and did come back and whatever, but then alternative structures within the American Episcopal Church and outside of it were began to get set up. And it predates that a little bit, but mostly. And um, so um, I don't think Adiaphora was ever a major category until more mm-hmm. recently. And it became a more uh, a category more recently because of the intractability of the whole thing. When people are dividing from one another, refusing to recognize each other's orders and not sharing the Eucharist and so on, not giving money and so on and so forth, then you've got something pretty serious going on in the church. And from the point of view of the Episcopal Church, I don't know what the cost of property litigation has been for departing congregations, but it's probably $80 million at least that has been spent, mm. which, which is shocking in many respects. Um, uh, but in any case, having seen that, you know, people were looking for a way to put the pieces back together. And one way is to say, come on, folks, calm down. And why are we going to calm down? Because it's really secondary. Yes, you can think it's important. This people are doing it's important, but let's not break communion over the whole thing. But that was after the horses were out of the barn. So the Adiaphora argument is sort of a Johnny come lately to the thing. And also, you know, I, I use the term naive. I think, it, yeah, it was naive to think that this is actually something anybody's paying attention to. Um, now, there may be some people the people, sort of congregants, and maybe some clergy who say, you know, I'm sick of this fighting. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it can't be that important. Nothing is important enough to explode the church and the Episcopal Church and congregations and communion and so on. So it's got to be, by definition, adiaphora because it's just too painful um, to deal with. But that's not an argument. That's just uh, that's, that's hope. articulate. Well, it's also <laughs> articulating exhaustion and, and so on. Um, which so the... So the effect of the 2022 meeting was to, I gather that all efforts to change the subject failed and that um, this irreconcilable difference at the level of core conviction just was out in the open. And and your your, your article argues that we just have to, Anglicans just have to face that reality and figure out how to live a Christian live, live a Christian life, run their parishes, run their diocese accordingly. Well, they do, but accordingly it can go in lots of different directions. What was unusual and novel, I think, and it's not that it hadn't been said before, but at the level of a Lambeth conference and from the voice of the Archbishop of Canterbury, what was novel was the claim that the Anglican communion is a set uh, a, a set of churches with plural convictions. And, you know, that 
different. The way it was the way it was expressed was different from saying, you know, well, we have a diversity of views. We've been hearing that and so on. Um, this was a, a statement very clearly that not just that we disagree, but the communion is a place of fundamental disagreement about these yeah, matters that, that, that are divisive on the level of Eucharist uh, teaching and other there is a There is a, uh, it's a management consultant. It's a, well, it's a widespread rhetoric in our society that, that plurality, diversity, these are all strengthening things, not weakening things. So I can imagine the Archbishop of Canterbury hoping to, if you will, put lipstick on the pig of this reality by kind of describing it in a more positive civil society that that eventually, depending on what the diversities are about, it's one thing to have our, our various cultural festivals uh, in the summer uh, going through mm-hmm. this or that neighborhood of the city, as well as to have, you know, colleges that are bound to different denominations and religions and so on and so forth and having op-ed articles with different points of view in the newspaper. There's a difference between that kind of diversity and plurality and saying that the laws of the state are all going to be different. Yes, uh, we no, know I agree. That, that doesn't work well. I mean, look right now what's going on in our country around things that abortion and so on that people by no means think are adiaphora. Um, They're not livable. And the Anglican Church on this basis is no different from, you know, whether it's Texas or Massachusetts trying to legislate uh, very differently matters of abortion and being in the same country. (laughs) Nobody's accepting this. I mean, we're living with it right now, but nobody's accepting it. Well, let me pursue pursue that even on a broader frame of reference. I'm wondering whether this Lambeth is a sign of deglobalization more broadly. Um, I think of often, I remember, certainly in my youth and, and, and uh, in the 80s when, when we were in grad school together and so on, I, I could see that multiculturalism as an ideology, and I don't mean that necessarily in the pejorative sense, but as an ideology was a, a way of, a way of conceptualizing uh, globalization. So you had a sort of way in which you could sort of all come together in this largely unified but nonetheless diverse global system. And, uh, and we had the same thing to, with domestic um, affairs as well. And that seems to have, I don't know, uh, that seems to have um, become harder and harder to believe. I mean, and certainly with a global, there is deglobalization going on. I mean, I think the United States, we're going to spend over $100 billion building chip plants in the United States to decouple from China in that area. And then, of course, we've got a brewing um, global conflict uh, with uh, focusing around the Ukraine, where people are taking sides in different nations in the world. And well, just, I, when I, I read I, your I, article, I thought, wow, in a way that uh, the Anglican Communion kind of uh, foreshadowed this kind of deglobalization over I the think last that's 25 right. years. I think that's right with, with, with elements, especially, but not only of culture, also some economics. I already pointed to a few pretty obvious things about who, who spends the money and who so on. Um, 
But see, the notion of, of a Catholic communion, and I'm not speaking Roman Catholic or otherwise, mm-hmm. but the church Catholic, I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, has always claimed, has always claimed that whatever diversities exist um, are indeed adiaphora vis-a-vis fundamental uh, shared convictions and realities. And this issue of sexuality is viewed as fundamental. That's the point. Once it's viewed as fundamental, which it is, and yet there are differences of views about that, then you cannot have a Catholic church that functions properly. Um, according to, so I man, that's, that, that is a global, yeah. that is an issue of it. And I'm, and I'm not sure deglobalization of Catholicism, um, is, is positive when it hits those fundamental levels of our baptism and our, uh, incorporation into the body of Christ and to the teaching and articulation and embodiment of the gospel. Um, that, you know, I don't know what it means. I think you're right that those dynamics are at work and that they have, they have allowed things to come to this place where, where conflict is 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 masked as diversity, uh, or was, and still yeah. is by some. But I think it's also deeply dangerous to the Church of Christ to work on that level. The, um, it, the sexual revolution seems to have been the sort of world historical event of the 20th century with respect to the church Catholic. Is that fair? Looking back on the 20th century, and we had this two massively destructive wars, uh, um, the Cold War, communism versus the free world, et cetera, et cetera. But now looking back, if we, if we think that the, the life of the church is really the, if you will, the, 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 the beating heart of, of the world's um, uh, destiny, We'd have to look back and say that it really the sexual revolution that really just. Uh, I, I I think you're right, but I think it's it has been so, not solely, but but also in 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 a, in a large part, it has been this this big, uh, important, flashpoint or or pivot or whatever, insofar as it expresses yet even deeper or related changes of attitude and perspective. Um, so it's not just about sex that, that's happened in the 20th century. That's been the place it's all exploded around in large yes. part because that is so fundamental to our relational lives, um, um, to societies and, and so on. But I think that that behind or along with the sexual, we'll call it sexual revolution, has been this has been my argument. It's not shared by that many people, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but no news there is that the sexual revolution has been fueled by uh, deep forgetfulness and in, in rebellions, not just revolutions, against the the fundamental character of our embodied mortal existence that we're creatures. Um, and you know, there's lots that goes with that, but I think it comes down to some very key things, which is that God has made us, uh, as fragile creatures who live a few years and that that fragility and limitation is bound up with our bodies of which of course, sexuality is a big part of them. And that has been so battered as, as a framework for understanding who we are. It's either been 
deconstructed or brushed aside or masked or avoided or what have you. Well, there's a lot of technological promise that we can overcome it. And there are different folks who have pursued this. I, I agree with you. You know, there's, you know, uh, um, there's a line of thinking of sort of the Baconian rationality applied to the human person that we are, our bodies are raw material for us to operate upon with our, and reconstruct in a better way. Right. The sexual revolution reflects that conceit. And, and once somebody says, and a culture says, or whole parts of a culture say, I don't want, not just I can't, but I don't want to have children. Yeah. I think that that I think that represents a threshold uh, uh, on the other side of which all these other things inevitably, but they're related. It's not just cause and effect; they're mutually no. reinforcing. Yep. But but um, the notion that I don't want to have children, or it's not essential to who we are as human beings, and thus our societies and our churches, is um, astonishing. So, um, and I think you're right, though, the sexual revolution is the place where everybody sees this at work and plays it out. And of course, it's a sex is passionate, literally. And so all of our passions uh, are, yeah. are not all, but a lot of them are bound up with this and expressed in this around these areas. And when you get theology involved with sex, you've got an explosive mixture. <laughs> you, you write, and this is related to this notion that that these debates about about same-sex marriage I mean there are very technical sides of them and there's very important biblical arguments um, they're very important arguments about the tradition but your observation is that they also implicate um, really fundamental transformations of our society and you write this confusion disagreement and political hus difficulties hostilities over sexuality reflect deep cultural issues. We've been talking about them that may one day be resolved, but not in the short term and probably not without the intervention of catastrophic social changes driven by factors other than theological discussion. What do you have in mind there about what, I mean, I'm, I, I immediately assented to that sentence well, I mean, listen, to, on, on the most concrete level, it could be something like nuclear war, asteroids, civil war, um, you know, I, you know what, what, what I call catastrophes. And catastrophes, I think, one argument that I buy is that they have driven, natural and social catastrophes have driven social change far more effectively and decisively than people coming to agreements about and what not just a better way to organize. Our no, I, I, I'm inclined to agree. And but in a profound ignorance, that book, it's not a catastrophe, or maybe it is a catastrophe. But the discovery of the new world was as a kind of tremendous punch, you know, blow to the head. It was really a kind of disorienting new reality. So I guess it is a catastrophe in a certain sense, although we tell it in our histories as. Well, I guess now it's thought as uh, genocide, so it is uh, <laughs> kind of more. Well, no, no, that's quite right. There were lots of catastrophes <laughs> bound up with that. Um, some of them intellectual, some of them political, some of them, uh, what do you want to call it, biological. Um, I don't think, you know, more recent scholarship that looks at 
focuses more on the biological side of things is wrong, by the way. Um, I mean, we can we can measure these things more or less. There's disagreement about what was the population of Mexico uh, uh, at the time Columbus arrived. Was it 25 million or more? But we do pretty much know what it was <laughs> after a couple cent a century or two. It was one million. And and you know whatever the the moral issues involved in that, that was a catastrophe. That's all. Um, I mean, it was also uh, a kind of felt by the Western intellect. Absolutely. As a, as a kind of whoa both stunning new possibilities, but also these these daunting and almost morally overwhelming failures. They were. And, and you know, and, and Spain itself, for, for back, back in Europe, Spain's both political and economic order collapsed in the 18th century, at least, if not earlier, in large part because of the way they had organized and acted, but let's just say or now for organized their colonial enterprises in a way that was deeply, uh, what do you want to call it, um, painful for the Spanish population on a daily way. I mean, yeah, Europe went through a lot of things, and and while 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 the while the Americas and China and so on, which were new to European um, knowledge and sensibilities and experience, uh, were were new, were upsetting in lots of ways. Um, at the same time, of course, Europe is. In parts of Europe, not everywhere, parts of Europe were completely collapsing. I mean, the 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 the, the wars of religion, so called, in in France, I I still don't think people pay attention to this as they should, and uh, in just in terms of quantity, um, how many people actually died and why, and all this is mixed up. It's not just one single cause. Um, so, but I'm, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about catastrophes like that. If, in fact, the desire to have children, see, it can go both ways. I don't mm. want any children because we kill each other. There's nuclear war. There's this, that. Well, who wants to bring a, a child into a world like this? This has become a common thing. But part of it is our catastrophic thinking has also been um, blunted. <laughs> we We don't we're not we're not taught how to think catastrophically people used to and catastrophic thinking used to encourage birth now it seems to do the other well not thinking experience <laughs> um how did that happen i mean there's it's a complicated question but when it comes to sexuality i don't think you know i don't think people are there there was this view i think is it ross douthat was talking about it with respect to transgenderism you know there is a view that says oh come on um you know just give it time this is like an adolescent it'll play itself out don't worry about it uh, he seemed to indicate he he didn't buy this but it's, it's a kind of nature will win out in the end argument yeah and i think people have some people might think that with respect to sort of the larger sexuality questions. I don't think that's the case. You know, a steady state culture, which there isn't one, but but if we think there is one, is not going to change. We're not all going to come to our senses or come to an agreement. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think we'll be forced. We'll be forced. What, what form can a broken communion take in the future? I mean... Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, is facing stresses that are not unknown to someone like you who's spent uh, a life in, in the Episcopal Church, in the Anglican Communion with the German Church and its synodal path and so on and so forth. 
So I, I, I guess, I mean, we're all sort of asking ourselves, it seems to me, what to some degree or another, things are broken or feel like they're breaking. So can you, we conclude with some advice or maybe well, yeah. what is the, there's advice and also what is the defined plan in all this? <laughs> so let me, let me um, use the example of the ecumenical movement, which, you know, I'm, I'm using as a placeholder. Um, by the, by the early part and middle part of the 20th century, um, ecumenists or people who are ecumenically minded, and I'm not talking just about sort of great famous people, but lots of folks, they understood the disunity of the church as, and this goes back to the early 20th century, certainly, as one of the great, not just sins of the church, but obstacles to the proclamation of the gospel and therefore to faithfulness in the world. They understood that. They understood it clearly and they saw the First World War and then the Second World War and all these things as implicated in, in some, at least to some degree in, in mm. Christian disunity. So they saw their goal as one to which they weren't just committed because, you know, I, I, one person writes about the atonement, another about the Eucharist, and I'm interested in ecumenism. No, this was, this was a, 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 an imperative, an absolute a vocate burden of vocation upon Christians to pursue. And they understood it in almost some of them anyway, desperate way. And they understood unity not to be there. So they were working for it. They were committed to it. They were working for it. And they tried all kinds of things. It's interesting that by the end of the 20th century, you start having this view among some ecumenists and ecumenical discussion that no, we already have unity. Um, we just don't understand it, and we're not, we're not being, you know, God has already given us unity. We have to uncover it. We have to cherish it. We have to whatever. It's a very different view from the earlier ecumenical laborers who were convinced we didn't have unity, and that was, that was, that was killing us. Now, so unity became something by the end of the 20th century that was, made you look nicer, but it didn't actually it wasn't required in any new way in order to be fully faithful or Christian or be able to proclaim the gospel. Well, I think one of the things with the current Anglican communion and its uh, travails um, is that we've reached that stage. Either people have just given up on it uh, or they're saying again, you know, well, this is as good as we're going to, this is, this is communion. You know, we get along a little bit and we share some money and we we come to some meetings that we can afford to and somebody will have us and um that's nice um we've lost i'm serious about this we have lost the last the last lambeth conference seemed bereft of anybody who said the communion is required for our spiritual health or the or the the, the repair of the communion is required for our spiritual sustenance, uh, survival. Uh, I didn't hear anybody say that. Um, I know there were some people who felt that. But so what is communion now? Uh, I think communion will have to be um, um, uh, I'm sorry. If, if there's going to be a new Anglican communion, it's going to be 
one which recon which reconceives what communion is. And I'm not saying I, I th th this is something I have come to with only some um, reluctance. That you know, if what is perfect unity? Perfect unity is Jesus on the cross. Um, he is the one who gives himself totally, perfectly in forgiveness and the pure mercy and grace of God uh, and, uh, for, the, for, the, for the world he has made. Um, that is not something that we, that's achievable in this world. Uh, so I think we actually have to look at communion as a more of a, in more in human terms, at least for now anyway. And we have to reconceive it as uh, two things. That commitment that I talked about, which has to be rekindled, and patience, those two things. We're just going to keep at it, and we don't know how it's going to work, but we can't let it go. And I actually think there's some people in the communion who have churches, Church of Kenya, for instance, Church of Egypt, who have, I don't want to say they've thought of it in these terms, but they've witnessed to some extent this way of understanding communion as a process, not a thing, as a more human reality, to which one commits oneself rather uh, than as the divine perfection of unity. Um, and so um, it doesn't look like what I experienced of the communion in the past. I said, that's finished. And I could talk about, it's not just, it is nostalgia, but it's a, it's a reality. Um, and, um, uh, but a willingness to carry on with other people, but only so far and only within a certain ways. I talked about that at the end of the piece. We're going to have to be experimenting a little bit about new arrangements, but arrangements that aren't yet expressed in, in, in stable uh, structural terms. Um, uh, that's not there yet. So you're asking, you know, what about the Catholic? Well, the Catholic Church has these structural realities. Um, they better keep them as long as they can, you know. I can tell you from an Anglican perspective, once they start fraying and being dismantled, it's very yeah. hard to get back just the ability to talk any longer. I'm serious. Um, structures are really important. I know people find them oppressive, but you get rid of them. Uh, institutions and so on are valuable because they uphold our weaknesses in the face of that which is too heavy to bear through our own internal initiatives. Um, so maintaining those structures is important, but one is going to have to make it clear that the, the, the integrity, the survival of the integrity of our Christian life together is dependent upon our commitment that is unwavering to, to um, moving towards, in our lives, reflecting in our imperfect ways, the perfect unity, which is given in Christ Jesus. Um, I don't know what else to say. There is no magic bullet or strategy out there that's going to put everything together. But what was so discouraging to me in the Lambeth conference was that we had lost the desire. Hmm. Desire seemed to have evaporated. Um, um, you know, the, the few responses to the little article uh, in First Things that I've read have fallen into pretty predictable lines. One line was, I told you so, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, Anglicans who have become Catholics, 
or Anglicans who have left the Episcopal Church and joined ACNA or whatever, sort of like, what were you thinking? Um, to think that it was ever going to end up anywhere but here. Then another view is a more liberal view that says, you know, well, this expression that communion's important in the ways you've talked about common teaching and common mission and common Eucharistic fellowship, that's just a nostalgic, reactive, narrow-minded, repressive, oppressive, bigoted um, attempt to, <laughs> to, to marginalize queer and gay sensibilities and um, experiences. And then, of course, you have the, it's all adiaphora anyway, so come on, everybody, calm down. Um, none of those things, to me, rise to the level of what I'm talking about, the patient commitment in the face of, right now, intractable differences um, to trying, however, to uh, heal something whose healing, uh, upon whose healing our survival uh, as, as faithful Christians depends. Um, again, that's not, that's not a structure and it's not a strategy, but it is, it is an orientation, which I think is essential to every Christian. Uh, I don't know whether that makes any sense or is too abstract. Nope. That's very helpful. Well, thanks for this article. And, uh, I, I really appreciate, uh, bringing our readers to a, a, um, an informed and realistic assessment of um, the challenges of hanging together in 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 the midst of this very profound conflict over uh, per precipitated by the sexual revolution. Although, as we agree, it, it it runs much more deeply than that. So, well, thank you for being on the podcast. It's been my honor and my privilege. Thank you, Rusty, and thanks to First Things and my little plug. Yes, do subscribe.